TFS, talking about Team Build and MS Build with William Bartholomew. Uh, today I have with me my my co-hosts, and Martin Woodward and Mickey Gousset. Morning, guys. Hey there, how you doing? We've got a full house today. Yeah. <laughs> Good morning, Paul. Morning, guys. Uh, and with us, we have a special guest today, William Bartholomew. William's a widely recognized as a leading Australian expert on the Visual Studio Team System Suite and has been awarded as a Microsoft Most Valuable Professional. Over the last two years, he has worked closely with Microsoft's product team in the U.S., providing user feedback on the latest releases of VSTS and suggestions about future versions. William is the vice president of the Queensland VSTS user group and has presented at numerous Microsoft events throughout Australia. He is the co-author of Inside the Microsoft Build Engine, Using the MS Build and Team Foundation Build, published by Microsoft Press. William works for Queensland-based business software solution company Technology One, where his primary focus is on improving developer productivity by implementing VSTS, focusing specifically on education, processes, and tools. William can also be found occasionally blogging at blogs.teamsystemnotes.com. Wow, that's a mouthful. Welcome, William. We're glad to have you with us today. Thanks, Paul. It's um, good to be here. Excellent. Well, we're glad to have you. And, and this is an exciting topic, and I know our listeners are really going to want to uh, be picking this one up and listening to it because everybody's interested in the build. I want to just jump right in and start asking some questions. Um, mainly, uh, what I want to just kind of hit on first thing is, what are some of the uh, good best practices around build, you know, that our, that our listeners should, you know, kind of at a high level? What should everybody who's working with build, kind of the do's and don'ts? Yeah, it's, it's always a tough thing. Build is one of the most important parts of software development because, you know, you can write all the source code in the world, but unless you build it and build it properly, you know, you don't really have software. So, there are, I guess, a number of key things to watch out for. And one of the things that I always push people towards is the idea of an end-to-end build process. And, you know, you talk to people and they go, yeah, we've got automated builds. And when you start digging into what they do, they've usually only automated the compile and testing parts. And you have a look at everything they actually need to do to release their software and you find that once they've done the compilation, they do all of these manual steps. So zipping up directories, copying documentation from the documentation team, putting together release notes, uploading it to the company's FTP site. And all of these manual post-build steps kind of take away from the consistency and, you know, there are things that can go wrong very late in the process. So what I always try to push people towards is building as much of that stuff into their build process as possible so that once they're done, there's no manual steps once the build is completed. What what kind of tools are out there to help them facilitate these things, though? Say they want to zip up things or they want to uh, FTP. Uh, is there any tools that can help them out there? The great thing is because team builds based on MS Build in 2008 and Workflow Foundation in 2010 is there's hundreds of custom tasks and custom activities out there that you can reuse. So there's at least three or four libraries of MS Build tasks on CodePlex, one called SCC Tasks, and there's also MS Build Tasks on Tigress.org, which is one of my favorites. And they have things that cover pretty much everything, you know, zip, FTP, email, 
down to controlling IIS. So if, as part of your build, you want to deploy your application and you need to stop an IIS site, um, you're bound to find a task that can do that. Fantastic. Well, let's take a step back for a second. And can you give me a little bit of an explanation of the difference between MS build and team build and how they interrelate because you've, you've, you've hinted at it, but for people that might be new to team build, because there are people that are new to it, can you just kind of go back and give us an overview of, of team build itself and MS build and, you know, how they compare and what's, you know, the interrelation between them? Sure. Um, MS build is a bit of a funny thing because if you ask most developers if they use MS build, they'd probably say no. And what a lot of people don't realize is that Visual Studio projects, you know, your VB proj file and your CS proj files are based on MS Build and have been since 2000, um, Visual Studio 2005. And they basically describe, you know, how to build that particular project. And it's an XML scripting language for want of a better analogy. Team build is more of an orchestration and management server-based build engine. So the idea is that team build provides really the enterprise level of build management. So taking the building of one of those projects, doing things like integrating with source control, integrating with work items, deploying to drop folders, all of that kind of enterprise level things that you need to do as part of a build process. And probably one of the most important things is reporting. You know, being able to look at, you know, what's your build failure rate, um, how many tests have passed, and all of that high level reporting you need. Well, all of this sounds, trying to th- look at this as someone who's not used this product much, um, sounds very, very complicated. In your perspective, is it complicated to get up and running? It, it's quite easy to get started. Um, so the team build, for instance, has a wizard which will take you through and set up your basic build configuration You know, to do your built-in things such as getting the source from source control, um, doing the compile, running unit tests, running code analysis, and publishing the builds. So it takes almost no work to get to that point at all. Where you start to having to learn a bit more about MS Build and a bit more about Team Build is when you want to start doing those additional steps. So you're wanting to, you know, do pre-build or post-build processes to really automate the whole end-to-end thing. And while it requires you to learn a little bit of MS Build, it's it's got a few quirks, but once you learn them, it's quite a simple um, language or syntax to use. You just need to, I guess, build up a little familiarity with it. One of the things I did when I was getting involved um, in Team Build and MS Build was to, um, you know, to try and follow it all through myself and to to read the, you know, Microsoft Team Foundation Build Targets file that all of the Team Build files. Um, import and just sit through and work that through, you know, over a few times, and because it's actually surprisingly well commented, isn't it, William? It is. The um, Team Foundation team have spent a lot of time, you know, actually explaining within their build process how it all works and how it all ties together and what order things happen. So it is a really good way to learn MS Build. Um, 
And it's a little less complicated than some of the other target files that Microsoft provides, such as for building VB projects, which are significantly more complicated. Yeah, and significantly less well-documented inside as well. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So I got a question for you here, William, is, you know, uh, is there any steps that people should take up front to prepare themselves for, for the build process? So by that, I mean, is there a specific branching or strategy they need to have or a way to structure their source code so that they're going to get uh, take better advantage of the build, have a better build experience? I think some of the... I think one of the main things you have to look at when you're dealing with builds is mainly being consistent. Each of the branching strategies, for instance, you can build them equally well, but you're going to make your build process much easier if you're consistent in how you structure your source, how you branch it, and how you manage those branches so that you don't have to vary your build process much from version to version or project to project. The more consistency you get, the more you'll be able to reuse parts of your build process or even the whole build process across products, versions, or individual projects. So that consistency is important. And probably the other thing is knowing exactly what you want to build, how you want it packaged, Really clarifying all of that up front and knowing, I guess, what you want the end product to look like. A lot of people get in there and just start, you know, start adding in bits of extensibility and not really thinking about what their goal is and what they're trying to get to. And I find that having a good idea of, you know, how do you want your binaries laid out, what... um Zip files do you want to produce? Where do you want them to be published? What configuration you might want to do to your build process? If you think about all of those things up front, it does make it a bit easier to plan your build process and think about how you want to structure it. Okay, great. Um, I, now, this sounds a lot like, you know, I'll be working with, um, you know, some wind forms or, you know, it sounds like a great a great tool for all that. But what about websites? I have a website that I want to build and deploy. How does how does the build work with uh, building the websites? The great thing about Team Build is it can build any projects based on um, MS Build. So that includes WinForms, class libraries, um, web applications, um, even Wix installers can be built with Team Build out of the box. If you can put it in a solution, then you can pretty much build it with Team Build, which is really nice. Um, out of the box, there's not much from a deployment perspective for web applications, um, depending on what you want to do. And that's where some of those custom tasks can really help, especially if you're publishing you know, via FTP or you have to do um, manipulation of config files before you deploy and things like that. So, and kind of jumping around, because I do that on this podcast, there are other products out there that do build stuff, like some of them free, some some of them cost, and Martin keeps me straight on my, my open source ones. Why why should I use Team Build for my automated build process versus uh, an open source tool that will do pretty much the same thing? I guess the thing about Team Build, and it's the classic story of the sum being greater than the parts, because Team Build has such 
tight integration into version control and work item tracking and reporting, you get a lot of value for very little effort. So while you could use you know, an open source build automation tool, if you want to get things like the linking of change sets back to work items so you know what build they were built in, you're going to have to start building all of that integration yourself unless that tool happens to ship that as a feature. So what Team Build gives you is a lot of information and a lot of integration and automation without you having to go and build those bits and tie them all together yourself. That's probably probably what I think is one of the key features, um, just that the integration is so seamless. And you just mentioned a point that, that I kind of want you to elaborate on a little more, which is that integration back to the work item tracking system and whatnot. What exactly, when you, when you, when you mention that, can you go into a little more detail as far as what that integration is and, and why that's such a good thing? Sure. I think it's one of the most valuable things that Team Build does. And, you know, it's especially something the testers love. And basically what happens is each time Team Build does a build, it looks at what changes have been introduced since the last time it did a build. So it knows that the last build was using version 35 of the software. This build, we're now up to version 30. And it will go and grab all of the change sets between those two versions and associate them with the build. So if you look down at the bottom of a build history, you'll see a section called Associated Change Sets. And there, it will list each of those changes. And it also does that for work items. So you can actually go into a work item and see what particular build that work item was first built in or last built in. And this means that testers can do things like work out what has changed in the since the last build so they know exactly what they should be going in and testing. Or if a build breaks, God forbid, a developer can look at that list and see what change sets could be the culprit for the build breaking and go and blame the guilty party. And one of the other things I've noticed in my travels in team build, because I am not a team build expert by any stretch of the imagination, is there while there's there's documentation out there on MSDN, there's, like Martin said, you can start digging through the the targets file and whatnot, but no one's ever written a good book about it until now. And I wanted to give you a good plug because I, I think your book <laughs> is is really, 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 really good. And again, to plug his book again, it's inside Microsoft Build Engine using MS Build and Team Foundation Build. And the Shrinkster address of that is shrinkster.com slash 178D for Delta. Having written a book myself, what possessed you to decide to do that? Well, it kind of happened um, really quite fast, actually. Saeed had um, already pitched a book to Microsoft Press on MS Build primarily and decided it would be a good idea to have some team build content in there as well. Um, so he started asking people, you know, who do I need to talk to about team build? You know, who's been doing this stuff? And Eventually, it got to me, and I said, yeah, I'll do it, and it kind of just took off from there, um, and my three chapters became four chapters, and my 20-page chapters became 50-page chapters, because there was just so much information about team build, and 
while there was a lot of blog posts and a lot of bits and pieces of information about team build over the place, there was no real comprehensive source of information on it. And what I was trying to do is write the book that I would have liked when I first started using team build because there was so much stuff I had to learn and investigate and work out, oh, why does it work this way or how do you do this? And I guess that's the kind of knowledge I wanted to provide, you know, to save people from that initial learning curve a bit. And you did a great job of that as well. I think the yeah, order awesome. is an excellent book. In fact, um, I seem to remember talking with you. Um, didn't you have an interesting experience when you were walking around the build lab at Microsoft? Yeah. Um, when I was in Seattle for the MVP summit, I met up with a few people in the build lab. Um, I was walking around and there's a copy of my book sitting on someone's desk and they're like, can you sign it? Can you sign it? I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, you Ooh, always superstar. think. <laughs> you always think, you know, perhaps the build lab should know build better than me, but okay, why not? I'll sign <laughs> my book for you. Speaking of uh, the build lab, we um, recently put up a show um, uh, from Grant Holiday when he was talking about, uh, you know, the build process that Microsoft do internally. Um, and up until your book, probably one of the, uh, you know, an interesting book on build was that the Buildmaster book by Vincent Marina, Mariara, whatever it's called, Mariara. There you go. I'm looking yeah. at it right now. That's uh, shrinkser.com 178G. What did you think about that book? Some of the stuff was it sounded a bit crazy to me because it was like Microsoft's processes, but other things were quite interesting. What did you think? Yeah, it was, I guess one of the things that first drew me to that book is that there were very few books on build at all. So originally it was one of the only books. And I guess what I found interesting about it was not necessarily some of the exact ways it told or suggested you could do things or, you know, for a small company, you don't necessarily want to be implementing Microsoft's build process. But what it gave me is a bit of a grounding in some of the philosophies and principles and why they did things the way they did so that I could then apply them to what I was trying to do and either, well, generally scale them down to the level that we required. And, you know, they've got, or he's got some interesting comments in there around branching strategies and how that worked and how that tied in with build. And it was just a lot of really interesting philosophical information about how you should be building software and the importance of it. Well, what I want to do is I want to switch gears here a little bit in the time that we have remaining and basically talk about some of the new features within uh, 2010. Now, you talked a little bit about it um, in terms of now it's based off Windows Workflow, which is really cool. But what I'd like to know about is there's this idea of what they call a gated check-in I've heard about. And I'm curious, what is gated check-in and why should I care as a build user? It is without a doubt one of my favorite features and I think the main reason I want to implement Team Build 2010 in our company is so I can tick that gated check-in box. The, the thing that people always hate is a broken build. So someone checks in some code, they've compiled it locally and they're happy with it, but it breaks something else. And you know, between the time they check in that code and the time that they get the build working, which you know, chances are the person's just gone on a two-week holiday. Anyone that does a get of that source or merges that source into another branch is effectively getting broken code, which, you know, broken code just 
tends to proliferate. You know, once you've got a broken build, it just gets worse and worse. It's a bit like graffiti and broken windows in a, in a bad neighborhood. Exactly. You know, people start merging that broken code around and then their build breaks and they're not sure if it's because of their code or this other person's code and it just gets messy. And from a productivity perspective, it wastes a lot of people's time, you know, especially when you've got a large development team because you end up with 200 people all trying to diagnose this one broken build, which is never good. What gated check-in allows us to do is say, when you check in code, I don't actually want it to be checked in yet. I want you to run it through the build process. I want you to run a series of tests on it and any other criteria or activities you define. And if it passes all of those, then the code can be checked in. And this is a fully automated process. So the developer just goes check in and it pops up and says, you know, this system's been configured for gated check-in. Your changes will be shelved. The changes then get shelved like a normal shelf set. And the team build process picks up that shelf set and builds it and runs all of those tests. And if all of that works, it'll then check the code in on the user's behalf. If it fails, it goes back and notifies the user and the code isn't checked in at all. So it's basically no more broken builds or very few broken builds. Now, up until this point, um, you know, people use continuous integration to to kind of achieve a similar effect, you know, to reduce the number of broken builds and um, increase the the code quality of what was checked in, make sure it's continuously integrated. When do you think um, somebody should consider continuous integration versus gated check-in or when somebody should pick gated check-in over a continuous integration build? Because obviously team build can do both in 2010. Yeah, um, it's a good question. And I think it depends on the number of developers you've got because what continuous integration tells you is it's really a warning system. It's saying the build's failed, you have broken code in your source control. Um, what gated check-in does is tries to be more of an early warning system and prevent that code getting in there in the first place. And again, it depends on your branching strategy and you know, the number of developers you've got are probably the two criteria that I would normally look at. If you've got people working in for instance, project branches, and they're working effectively isolated from the mainline source of the product, then continuous integration is probably fine because they're going to be affecting a very small number of people. Whereas on the mainline of a product where you might have you know, 50 developers and 10 testers all dependent on the source in there, you might prefer to go the gated check-in route to make it virtually impossible, not completely impossible, but virtually impossible to break the build of that main line. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's how Microsoft themselves kind of use the feature. Because obviously, you know, gated check-in comes from uh, internally. Microsoft have a feature called Gauntlet, which again is actually described in that Buildmaster book, I think, isn't it? And yes, and, is. and yeah, and that's um, there they do a similar thing where they, they basically on a build server, run the build before it gets committed to the main line of code. But the individual feature crews can all run in continuous integration, you know, working on a particular feature. Say if you've got five or six developers working on the feature, they can run on continuous integration for their source. 
But when you want to check it into the big integration line of code, you know, then gated check-ins ideal. And it is really good for those large projects, but equally continuous integration has, you know, less effort involved and a bit less friction. So don't, don't, uh, hope people don't go too crazy with gated check-in, you know, it's worth thinking about. Another thing I was thinking about with it is the, um, people tend to go crazy with check-in policies and will often yeah. make life really, really hard for their developers to, to, to check code in, you know, because of these check-in policies. Whereas now, things that you might want to put into a check-in policy, you know, like code uh, code coverage, for example, um, test coverage, sorry, you know. Um, for the test coverage, you can now make that part of a, a, a check-in, you know, a, um, a gauntlet build, a gated check-in build. And those builds can, uh, you know, test for code quality. But at least that code is committed into the repository in a shelf set. You know, at least it's there and it's not going to get lost if the developer goes away for 24 hours on, you know, on a trip or something. The good thing is, um, unlike code check-in policies, they can't tick an override text box and just say, because I said so. Yeah, exactly. So hey, what about what do you think about using Windows, you know, workflow as the build language over MS Build? Yeah, it, it's interesting, and it's one of those things where you know you've invested a lot of time learning MS Build, and you're like, oh no, does this mean everything I now know about MS Build is useless? And it's actually not, because MS Build is still used quite heavily in the projects themselves. Um, and it's still the ideal choice for doing certain types of work, such as, you know, running an executable over a batch of files and things like that. What workflow gives us is, a, firstly, it gives us a visual designer, which I think everyone's been missing from MS Build, except the MS Build sidekick now gives us a bit of a visual design. But it allows us to do things that were very difficult in MS Build or borderline impossible, such as running different activities in parallel or, you know, doing looping or pushing stuff off onto other machines. So Workflow is really an orchestration engine. It's designed for longer running processes where MS Build was really designed for short running things such as building an individual project. So it's a bit of a shift for people and it's, there's now two technologies you've got to learn. You, you know, you have to know a bit about workflow and a bit about MS build. But I think overall it's a positive step towards being able to really automate that end to end process and doing everything you need as part of your build process. So does that mean does that mean that all of the investment or time that I've put into learning how Team Build 2005 and 2008 works is thrown out the window because now they've gone with this workflow concept instead? Or is all that effort and time that I've put into learning that still going to be valuable? There's certainly going to be times where you'll still want to use MS Build scripts. And Microsoft recognized that. And one of the workflow activities they ship actually allows you to execute an MS Build script and pass parameters through to it and control its execution. Um, but what you'll find is, whereas before you would have a large MS build script running your whole build process, what you might find is you have 
a number of smaller MS build scripts, you'll have some workflow activities, and you'll then tie them all together into the workflow. So that MS build knowledge is still useful, and there's certainly going to be places where MS build is still the best way to solve a problem. And also, in um, you know, when you upgrade from 2008 to 2010, um, your MS build scripts from 2008 are automatically you know pushed into that that MS build execute activity in 2010 world. So anything you you know any investment you're spending now in 2008 isn't wasted you know, when it comes to 2010 at all, is it, in terms of build processes? Yeah, the up, the upgrade process is nice and simple. You basically end up with a workflow with a single activity that execute MS build, and it passes it your old TFS build.proj. You know, if you don't want to learn workflow and you want to stick with what you're doing now, that's certainly an option. But as you move down and you want to start moving things out of that TFS build proj into the workflow, you've got the ability to do that without having to throw out everything you've done. And a key thing about the workflow as a, you know, as a technology is now we can actually control everything that happens on the build agent, you know, from, from a code arriving to the, the reports going off the build agent. Whereas before in, you know, 2008 world, there's a little bit of stuff that happens before a build happens and a bit of stuff that happens after a build happens that you just cannot change, you know. Yeah, it gives you a lot more control. And I think one of the features that I really love is they've now enabled the multi-build machine capability. So within a workflow, you can push different parts of your build process off onto different machines. So an example of where we're looking at doing that is after our build, we do two quite long-running activities. One is running our unit test, and one's generating our API documentation. We've got, you know, a couple of million lines of code. So our API documentation takes nearly two hours to produce. There's no reason why those two things can't be done in parallel on different machines. And the new workflow allows us to design a workflow that pushes off those bits to machines and then waits for them to complete and then goes on and does later activities. So it gives us a lot more flexibility and control than was available previously. I want to jump back to our previous discussion in just a second and put put you on the spot. So you're telling me that if I've put a lot of investment into my 2005 and 2008 team build customizations, that when I upgrade to 2010, they're all just going to work? I'm not going to have to go in and make any changes to them when I finish the upgrade process, that my builds are going to keep working the way they, they were working? From what I've seen so far, the experience is pretty much that. Um you know, it's still early days. You know, we're only up to the first beta. But the upgrade process is pretty seamless from what I've seen. Um, probably where you may have some things that you've got to test or tweak is because you're now going to have a new version and a new version of MS test and all of those things on your build machine is if you're trying to build projects that were created in previous versions of Visual Studio or targeted previous versions of MS Test, making sure that the correct executables are being called. Um, that was a problem in the 2005-2008 upgrade, and I suspect there'll be some similar tweaking that you might have to do after upgrading to 2010. 
Okay, fair enough, fair enough. And one final thing I want to throw out there is, are there any other features about 2010, either build or, or even otherwise, if there's something else that's got you excited that you'd like to point out? Oh, there's so much in 2010. It's a, it is a huge release. It's their biggest release yet, without a doubt. Um, I think hierarchical work items, you know, from a non-build perspective, are really going to change the way people manage work. Um, you know, the test and lab management for, and test case management stuff just brings a whole new dimension to how people manage a whole development process. Um, yeah, there's just, it's huge. Um, team builds got lots of little improvements as well, which are nice. The build details screen is much easier to read and navigate, which is, makes life a lot easier. Um, a really cool feature they added is in 2008 when you queued a build, if you want to pass any parameters to it, you basically had this big text box where you typed in the MS build command line parameters, you know, slash P colon property name equals property value. And the usability of that was pretty poor. In Team Build 2010, you can actually define properties on your workflow that you want to expose into the queue build dialog. So if you want people to be able to pick whether unit tests are executed or not, you can expose a property from your build process and that'll actually show up on that queue build dialog whenever a developer queues one of those builds. Well, awesome. And uh, I'd like to take this time now to start kind of wrapping up here. We've uh, we've really appreciated having you on the show, William. Uh, this has been a, been a great, great topic and I'm sure that our listeners are going to learn a lot from from your expertise and knowledge uh, I'd like to also let our, our listeners know that they can reach us with uh, comments, feedback, and show, show suggestions at radiotfs at gmail.com. So please send us your uh, suggestions and comments. We'd love to hear from you, and we will definitely uh, take them into consideration. Uh, and with that, I'd like to just wrap up the show and thank my co-hosts and William for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, and we'll, we'll see you next time on Radio TFS. 